This morning, we will be looking at the means that God uses in the life of his elect to save them and preserve them. I'll be using the confession a lot in this meditation. The, com uh, the confession is a great tool. Great theologians have put on a lot of hard work, and it would be foolish of us to ignore that work and pretend like we have to figure all this out on our own. I'll be using the Confessing the Faith, the 1689 Baptist Confession for the 21st century. It's a really great tool if you get tripped up on older language. It's a little easier to read. Now, this is a topic that can get pretty touchy sometimes. I have been in conversations where I, I have been accused of not being a Christian. I've been in conversations where someone on my side accuses the other side of not being Christians. And to be honest, I've been ungracious at times myself on this topic. A good starting point would be to talk about the decrees of God. Chapter 3 of our confession is titled, Of God's Decree. And the first paragraph states, From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of a creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. This is not something that the writers of the confession came up with. The nice thing about the confession is that they put scripture proofs at the end of each paragraph. And one of the scriptures they used here was Isaiah 46, chapter 10, starting in verse 9. It reads, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Now, I've heard people say things like, God looked into the future and saw what man would do, and so he made his decree from that. I don't think they really thought that through because it doesn't make much logical sense. If God saw what someone would do without him first decreeing it, then he would be learning. And if God learns, then there's something outside of God, which would make God not God. But the writers of Confession have heard this argument before because the second paragraph of chapter 3 states, God knows everything that could happen under any given conditions. However, his decree of anything is not based on the foreseeing it in the future or foreseeing that it would occur under such conditions. God doesn't learn anything because he has decreed everything. God using means is often referred to as providence. Chapter 5 of our confession is on divine providence. I'm going to read the first three paragraphs of the chapter. I didn't want to just read the confession to you guys, but frankly, the whole thing's good, and these guys are a lot smarter than me, and they can explain this stuff a lot better than I can. So the first paragraph says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Paragraph 2. All things come to pass unchangeably, 
and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. Yet, by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or in response to other causes. And then, paragraph 3. In his ordinary providence, God makes use of means, through, uh, though he is free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them, at his pleasure. A good example for all three of these paragraphs is the story of Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery, where he eventually ends up in Potiphar's house in Egypt. Joseph was a good-looking guy, so Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Then she lies about him. He gets thrown in prison. These are all wicked actions, but God uses that wickedness to put Joseph in a position where he can foretell dreams and get in front of Pharaoh, where he gets, where he eventually gets in front of Pharaoh, and he becomes a powerful man in Egypt with many responsibilities, and he saves a nation and his own family during the famine. These were all means God used to protect a nation, and not just a nation, but the bloodline that would lead to the Christ, that would lead to the redemption of his people. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That gets us into second causes or secondary causes. You may have noticed that phrase a couple of times in the confession. What does second causes mean? It took me a bit of time to wrap my head around this, but I found this helpful from, helpful from monergism.com. Quoting J. Gresham Machen, they said, God is the first cause, but the forces of nature and free actions of personal beings whom God has created are second causes. And then it says, It is important to observe that the two causes are not on the same plane. They are not coordinate, but one is completely subordinate to the other. In every event in the natural world, God has completely accomplished what he will to accomplish. He is not limited in any way by the forces of nature or by the free actions of his creatures. They act truly, but they truly act only as he has determined they shall act. The correct way, therefore, expressing the relationship between secondary causes and God, the great first cause, is to say that God makes use of second causes to accomplish what is in accordance with his eternal purpose. Joseph's brothers actually wanted to kill him, but God used Reuben to restrain the evil of his brothers and just throw him into a pit. Now, Joseph's brothers were fallen men, just like everyone else, so their hearts were wicked. God allowed them to act upon their wickedness. He used their wickedness to get Joseph to Egypt to be used there by God. Another good example of second causes is found in Isaiah chapter 10. And in verse 5, we read, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff of their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder and tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Here God is using Assyria to punish Israel for their idolatry. And here God literally tells us that he is decreeing Assyria to punish Israel. He's using Assyria as a tool of punishment against Israel. But then God also tells us that he's going to punish the Assyrians for it. How is that fair? God is making them do it. But in verse 12, we read, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By, my, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down the house whose, 
but I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there is none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. God does not force anyone to do anything evil. Man is not innocent, and then God puts a gun to his head or overrides his programming and forces him to do something evil. Man is born with a sinful nature, and left to do what they desire, they will choose evil. God uses those evil desires to accomplish his purposes. Ligonier Ministries put out an article in 2017 called Things That Fall Out Freely, which sum it up very well. We see that God chose to send, and it, sorry, this says, we see that God chose to send Assyria against Israel as his rod of wrath, but Assyria was not forced to war against Israel. The empire did so willingly, though it was motivated not by a desire to be God's instrument of judgment, but by a desire to line its own pockets and expand its territory. Both God and Assyria wanted Assyria to invade Israel, but not for the same reasons. So everything we do is a secondary cause. And because our evil nature, we desire to do evil. And God uses those evil works to accomplish his purposes until he changes our heart and we desire to do good, until we desire to do his will. And he uses means to bring about that change. I want to talk a little bit about my own testimony because I think it kind of relates a little bit to what we have talked about already. I was saved at the age of 18, but now looking back, I can see working in my life. I can see God working in my life before that. I was about 16 years old, going to Chafee High School here in Ontario, and I don't think I had any friends who were believers, but they all knew that my dad was a pastor, and so that automatically made me a hardcore Christian there. Every so often, they would ask me a question like, Jesus was Jewish, right? So why isn't Judaism the, the right religion that we should follow? Or if God loves everybody, then why do bad things happen to people? And every single time my response was, let me go ask my dad. And I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> and so I would go home. I'd ask my dad. He'd give me the answer. And I would go back and I would parrot the answer to my friends. Little did I know that God was using my unbelieving friends for a means for me to learn. I had no interest in God at this time, but I wanted to answer my friends. So I needed the answer. A short time later, I learned what Calvinism was. And I honestly don't understand how I had any friends in high school. If I, I was so annoying. If you interacted with me much back then, you would have realized I was a pretty big contrarian. I love disagreeing with people and arguing with people. And so you can imagine how excited I got when I found out that we held to a belief that a lot of other churches around here didn't, didn't like very much. And so... I like, I like to tell people that I was a Calvinist before I was a Christian because I spent a lot of time debating all five points of Calvinism. And in order to do that, I had to learn all five points, which required me to start reading theological articles, asking my dad a lot more questions. I was learning good, solid truths that God would use to change my heart. You see, I was like the king of Assyria. I was doing what God commanded. I was reading, learning more about him, but I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I was doing it because I wanted to prove I was right and others were wrong. But instead of punishing me for my arrogance and stubbornness, God slowly showed me the truth of these things, worked on my heart, 
And once I was saved, I already had a decent foundation of knowledge. So my friends were a means God used, and my own argumentative nature was a means God used to change my heart, or at least prepare me for salvation. But going back even further, I can see more of the workings of God. When I was in middle school and even in high school, I remember thinking to myself, I wish my family didn't go to church. I wish we weren't Christians. Not because I wanted to sleep in on Sunday, but because I wanted to do the stuff that I heard and saw other people doing. I knew what they were doing was wrong. And even though I wasn't a Christian, even though I really didn't care about the things of God, I knew I shouldn't do them. That's because of the law. We know that the law of God is written on the hearts of everybody. But growing up in a Christian home, being taught the law and the things of God, I think I was a little more perceptive, or at least I was more afraid of breaking the laws of God. And if any of my friends remember David Eubanks' Sunday School lesson on hell, you would understand why I was afraid that I see some nods, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are able to repress this, but I think this is another sign of God working on my heart, preserving me from worldly troubles and also preparing my heart for salvation. So what is the law? What is the purpose of the law? How is the law one of the means that God uses in the life of his people? Each of those questions could be a whole series of Sunday school lessons, but I'll try to give a short explanation. It's been said that there are three uses of the law, three ways which God uses the law. The first is the pedagogical use. It's a cool word. I probably said it wrong. In a Ligonier editorial titled, The Threefold Use of the Law is explained this way. The first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. On one hand, the law of God reflects and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. The law tells us much about who God is. Perhaps more important, the law illumines human sinfulness. The law is what we look to to see what God requires of us. It shows us God and shows us how sinful we are. The Lord will use this to convict us. He used it to keep me from trouble and lead me to him. The law is a means of conviction. Brother Pat did a great meditation on the law and gospel distinction. Brother Barry did one on the Mosaic Covenant, touching on the law, and you can't have the gospel without the law. Mark 2.16 And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Why would anyone seek out a physician if they didn't know they were sick or if they didn't think they could be sick? If you preach the law without the gospel, then you're abusing the hearers. You're just preaching legalism or work salvation. If you preach the gospel without the law, you're just giving people a solution to a problem they don't know they have. It happens sometimes to me at work. I work in a factory paint department, and I'll come in to find products sitting on the table needing repairs. But no one told me what's wrong. If I don't know what's wrong, then I can't get it, I can't fix it, and I can't get it to the hands of someone who needs to fix it. On the flip side, if, if I take somebody a product that needs fixing, and they don't know how to do the job, and I tell them what's wrong, but I don't tell them how to fix it, I'm just setting them up for failure. I'm not helping them at all. We need to use the law to show people they're sick, that they're broken and then preach the gospel to show them the solution to their sickness, to their brokenness. I think it's appropriate to say it protects us from ourselves. We, really, we rarely find a story about a professing Christian who just woke up one day and decided not to be a Christian. 
It starts with a little backsliding. A sin will work its way into their life, and they start to indulge in it, love it more than God's law, and eventually it goes so far, and they've fallen away. By keeping the law in our heart, we can use it as a tool to kill sin and stay near God. Now, I'm not saying a true Christian will fall away if they ignore the law. It is impossible to lose your salvation, but the law can be a means that God uses to preserve his elect, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. The second use of the law is the civic use. We see this in the laws of our country and other countries. It's always illegal to murder and steal. Because the law of God is written on our hearts, you can try to repress it, but some of it will still come out. You could say this is a means of protecting the elect from unbelievers. God is always restraining the evil of man. People will still do evil things and awful things, but when you think about it, they can always do worse. We've seen what happens when laws stop being enforced. There are some places in this country where you can walk into a convenience store and just take anything you want because they've stopped arresting people under a certain dollar amount. Laws and the punishment of breaking those laws are a means of restraining evil. But I think it's appropriate to say it helps us to be good witnesses to unbelievers as well. By following the just laws of our country, the ones that coincide with God's laws, we are showing unbelievers the proper way to act. A Christian who is seen stealing all the time is not a good witness. But not just the laws of government. It's important for us to follow the Ten Commandments to be a good witness. For example, at my work, people use foul language all the time. Like, all the time. And a lot of times they'll look at me afterwards and they'll go, Oh, sorry for the language, John. And there may have been a few times where I responded with, If you were really sorry, you would stop. But those were, I was already having bad days at that time. Most of the time I try to respond with, I try to respond with, it's okay as long as you don't use the Lord's name in vain. Because that always gets followed up with the question, what's that mean? And then I get to talk, explain to them the holiness of God's name, how offensive it is to use it inappropriately. And then they'll still do it. The third, the third use of the law is the normative use. The editorial I mentioned earlier says, as born again children of God, the law enlightens us as to what is pleasing to our Father whom we seek to serve. The Christian delights in the law as God himself delights in it. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument for the people of God, to give him honor and glory. The law shows us how to honor God. It shows what is pleasing to God. For example, the fourth commandment, we are told to set aside one day in seven to honor the Lord. True, we should honor him every day and we should pray to him every day. But we are specifically told to set one day aside to have that be our focus, to worship our God. The more we know what is pleasing to the Lord, the better we can worship, the better we can obey, the more Christ-like we become. I think this shows us how the law is a means of sanctification. Really, all three uses of the law is a good example of salvation, preservation, and sanctification. Chapter 19 of the Confession, paragraph 6 says, True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, to be justified or condemned by it, yet it is very useful to them, to others, as a rule of life that inform them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruptions of their hearts, uh, their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, 
they come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ in the perfection of his obedience. The law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened by the law shows them that even their sins deserve and what trouble they may expect in the life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promise of the law, likewise, shows them God's approval of obedience and the blessings they may expect when they keep it, even though the blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate they are under the law and not under grace. Now, I have to reference a hymn during this, during this meditation. As song leader, I think I might be contractually obligated to. And I think you can probably guess what hymn I'm going to reference. Hymn 449, The Law of God is Good and Wise. After a couple of meditations where people touched on the law and then we sang this hymn, that's kind of when this meditation clicked in my head. I'm like, oh, I should, this is what I should talk about. So I'm going to read, I'll read this hymn to you guys. The law of God is good and wise and sets his will before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress. Its light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts that we may see our lost estate and seek deliverance ere too late. To those who help in Christ have found, and would in works of love abound, it shows what deeds are his delight, and should be done as good and right. When men their offered help disdain, and willfully in sin remain, its terror in their ear resounds, and keeps their wickedness in bounds. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die, and has no power to justify. To Jesus we for refuge flee, who from the curse has set us free, and humbly worship at his throne, saved by his grace through faith alone. So if you're familiar with that hymn, next time anyone asks you what is the law, you can just read that hymn to them, sing it to them, and that's a really good explanation right there. The law is just one of the means God uses for salvation. Honestly, God can use anything. Traumatic, dangerous events such as Martin Luther getting caught in a storm and praying to God that he'll become a monk if he saves him. God saves him and Martin Luther carried through. But most of the time, the Lord uses simple means like the reading and preaching of the word. Preachers preaching the gospel from pulpits, missionaries sharing the gospel in foreign countries, or ordinary people sharing the gospel with friends or co-workers. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God uses means to save his elect, but the job's not done there. He doesn't take a hands-off approach after salvation. Just as the word of God is one means of salvation, it is also a means Christians should use to keep the faith as well. There are some passages in the book of Hebrews that can be troubling at first glance. Hebrews 3, 7-15 is one of them, and it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my, wa in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. At first glance, this passage could seem like it's saying we can lose our salvation. It's talking about falling away from the living God. But that would be contradicting other parts of scripture. Like when Jesus said that he loses none of his sheep. Or in Romans, when Paul's talking as if God has already glorified and sanctified his elect. What the author is doing here is using scripture to remind us of the unfaithful Israel in the past. A true Christian will see a warning like this. And the Holy Spirit will convict their heart, and they'll turn away from whatever sin was causing the backsliding. Remember, I said you rarely ever see someone who just wakes up and decides to be an atheist. These type of passages are to help us identify our backsliding and warn us to take it seriously. If you don't take it seriously, if you take a fatalist point of view, and you say, if God elected me, then I'm all good. I don't have to worry about this stuff. That could be a sign that you're not a true believer and will indeed fall away. This next means of preservation is a very important one, but it is so often overlooked and not taken seriously. And that's us. It's the church. When we come together, we worship. When we come together on Sundays, we worship God, but that's not all that happens. As we fellowship with each other, we build bonds, we become closer, we encourage each other, not just in our day to day lives, but in our worshiping of God. Seeing others worship is very encouraging because it reminds us that we're not alone. We have a common goal on Sundays, to give God glory and worship. Man is not meant to be alone, and just as our worship is to be active, so is our fellowship. What I mean by that is that fellowship takes work. You can't expect to come to church once a week, leave right after the service without talking to anybody and build bonds and friendships. Now, I understand that everyone has schedules and things come up and you can't always spend an entire day at the church. Um, I had a long period of time where I was just leaving right after church and I noticed that I had no connection really with anyone in it. I can't count how many times I've had conversations with someone who says that they didn't feel like coming to church that day. Then after they got here, they were so glad they did because of the preaching and the fellowship. Fellowship is good for the soul. It's good for the heart. We should not ignore the importance of fellowship. I've had times where I didn't really feel into it. And then I get up here and I hear all of you singing towards me. And it's just like a switch turns on and everything changes. And it feels great. It's amazing. Another little personal note. In 2022, I started attending a Bible study a block away from our house. I really enjoyed it. But because of work at the end of 2022, I stopped attending. And near the end of spring this year, I was going through a pretty big funk. Rachel and I weren't really able to schedule hangouts with friends that often. And I wasn't reading my Bible or praying as much as I should. I was stressed at work and overall just felt off. Sundays were great, but the rest of the week was rough. I made an effort and decided to attend the Bible study again. And just being with believers in the middle of the week for an hour made a world of difference. I almost immediately got back into my reading habits, my praying habits, and just felt better. Like I said, we should not ignore the importance of fellowship. Another way that the church is a means of preservation is what we're about to do right now, what we're about to partake in. 
the Lord's Supper. The elements are a means of grace, and it's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. By observing the Lord's Supper, we are reflecting on our sin, on Christ's work, and how we have been forgiven by God. That right there is a means of grace, preservation, and sanctification in itself. There's something that all these means we've talked about this morning have in common, and that's the fact that we have to do them. We have to take part in them. Just because God has ordained something does not take the responsibility off of us. God has ordained some to salvation, but he may have ordained that they come to faith during the preaching of the word. So we must preach the word and pray that God uses us as that means of salvation. Just like that, we also must make the effort to come to church. God won't just magically put us there. The more we do it, the closer to God we will become, and the more we will enjoy these means of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If you can put your faith in God for your salvation, you can put your faith in him for your preservation. The Lord is perfect. He knows all things because he is in control of all things. Take comfort in knowing that nothing can happen to you that God can't control. He is the one that works in your heart, and he has a 100% success rate. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and none who is a none is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Take comfort in knowing that the salvation of others is not based upon how good of a speaker you are. Sure, we want to be a good witness. But if you stumble, you aren't automatically condemning anyone to hell. The Lord is the one who calls. We should pray that we will be used to bring others to faith, and we should witness just as Christ commands in the Great Commission. But we are not the saviors. God has ordained the ends and the means. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you.